Hello, my name's Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where usually we give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. But we've got something different for you this week. Coming up today, I have a very special guest with me who I'm very excited to chat with. Peter Hornfeld is the man behind the popular aviation YouTube channel Mentor Pilot and is also a professional pilot of 20 years and a training captain for a major European airline. He joins me today to talk about becoming a pilot, moving into social media and the aviation landscape in general. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. Nothing like a good old chat on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever day it is today. <laughs> and you know how much we pilots love talking about aviation. You know, so. <laughs> Absolutely. And lots of people will be familiar with your voice, but we'll come to your um, social media endeavours in a minute. Let's talk about your aviation background first. So tell us about the early years. What got you into aviation in the first place? Yeah, so... Um, I actually, when I was really young, I, I had no thoughts about being a pilot. I wanted to become an archaeologist instead. Um, but then my uh, my father, he was working for a uh, for a large insurance company in northern Sweden, and in his job he needed to cover a lot of distances because northern Sweden is huge. So he thought maybe it's a good idea to get a private pilot license and fly on you know nice sunny days to where he needed to go. So he started doing that, and I followed him, and that kind of started it all. But the real reason, like the real time when I re realized that this is what I wanted to do, was when my mom and dad gave me as a birthday present for my 14th birthday a test lesson. So I went out, I did a, one of those picture-perfect days where there's no movement in the air. It's just like cutting butter with a hot knife. And... I did a, a nice flight around my hometown, around my home village where I came from in Arnsjösvik. And, uh, and then we flew back towards the airport. And I, I assumed that the instructor, Mats Hagenwald, uh, was going to take over. But he didn't. He just kind of patted me down all the way into the landing, through the landing until we were down on the ground. And once wow. that had happened, that was it. You know, then I was hooked. I was bitten by the bug. That sounds amazing. Do you remember what sort of plane that was that you flew for the very first time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a uh, Cessna 172. Um, I think it was Sierra Echo India Foxtrot Lima. Oh, wow. <laughs> remember all the details. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that, that's one of those defining moments. You know, one thing of that course. you can point that out, like here my life changed. And, and after that, I started looking into how can I possibly become a pilot? Like what ways are there to, to achieve this? And uh, I was 14, which means really young. So I had plenty of time, which is always a good thing. But we, I quickly honed in on the fact that Sweden used to have, and I think still does have a, a government program that you, know, you can apply to. And if you are accepted, the government will actually pay for your flight training. And they did so from the age of 17. So it was part of the normal mandatory school years it's part of the what we call gymnasium which is like junior college um so i knew that okay this is what i want to do that's where i want to get in but the problem was that it was only 30 spots available in the country so that meant that in order to even have a chance to get an interview i had to have perfect grades throughout like i couldn't miss a single subject and i wasn't a very good student like i was a medium like mediocre student at the time but that really just fired me up, which meant that I started working my butt off. And um, I managed to, to improve my grades until they were perfect. And I got that interview. 
and eventually managed to get in to um, to that school. So I started I started flying. I started doing my flight training when I was 17 years old. That's fantastic. And uh, what a great incentive from the Swedish government, because, you know, funding is such a massive issue for student pilots, you know, including today. And uh, that's great. It's going to become an even bigger issue. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Um, I don't know if you've heard podcasts before, but I often talk about my son who's keen to get into flying and uh, the extortionate costs that we're facing to to put him through any sort of flight training. But uh, it is one of my pet aids, to be honest. This is one of the things that I am most passionate about when it comes to flight training, because I see both on the industry side where we are going to need thousands, tens of thousands of pilots coming through. And on the pilots, like on the supply side, which is your son and people in his position, where, in my view, we should be looking for the best possible pilots. We should be looking for the best possible material. And those pilots might not be the ones who can afford £120,000 of training costs. Like We should be scavenging for the absolute best people out there and then fund them in one way or another. But we can get Mm. to that later yeah, absolutely. We'll come back to um, the pipeline of new pilots in a bit. But uh, for you, you were in the left seat by the time you were 25. I mean, yeah. you must have been one of the youngest captains in the industry. How did you progress so fast to getting that captain's chair? Well, the, the, the truth of the matter is that I actually delayed it for about a year and a half um, because the way that it worked, like I, I went through my training. And then I was I did my military training, which was part of mandatory military service in Sweden at the time. And then I finished off with my multi-engine and my MCC training at the very end there in 2001. And then I was lucky enough to to get to score an interview because in 2002, I think it was. And remember, that was just after 9-11. So the industry was in a free fall. Like it was not possible to get a job anywhere at that time. But I managed through a friend of mine to uh, to get an interview for this airline that was uh, you know getting bigger, that was expanding heavily, and I managed to get through that, which meant that I started flying when I was twenty. I was twenty years old when I started as first officer, and we flew a lot. We flew up to the maximum of nine hundred hours per year, which meant that at the time I was twenty three, I had three thousand hours, which is the minimum wow. to to become a, um, a captain. And then what happened was that I, uh, first of all, I felt a little bit young, but also I wanted to, to go into instructing. So I managed to get a job as a uh, synthetic flight instructor, as a training first officer, which was, by the way, the best decision that I've made in my career so far. Um, and that meant that I slowed down my flying a little bit. So I was instructing in the simulator. I didn't get as much flight time. And I did a year and a half of that. So when I was 25, I'd actually been working for five years, including instructing for about a year and a half. And yeah, I was very young, but so were quite a few others in, mm. in my airline at the time. Mm. Just uh, goes to show how much they put you guys to work, that you were flying up to that maximum hours per year. And, uh, you know, what a great experience for you as a young man. Absolutely. Like it was, it was fantastic. The type of experience that I was getting, the type of support I was getting from the captains that I was flying with, and obviously the experience I got being a, an instructor was second to none. It's, um, it's something that I have been reaping the benefits from during my entire career subsequently. 
Definitely. And I'm guessing that your background as an instructor is something that helps you with the reason that most people know your name, which is your very popular YouTube channel, because you are able to explain some of the most complex things and break them down into very um, understandable language, shall we say, so that even idiots like me can understand some of the more technical aspects of piloting. Um, what made you start making these? I think you call them video podcasts originally, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So, um, well, I mean, first of all, I'm quite entrepreneurial. Like, I like I like to, to start things and see if they work and, and do new things because I think that's really what it's all about. We're only here once. So, um, so that's one side of it. The other side was that my wife at the time, uh, well, still my wife, fortunately, uh, she said, <laughs> you really need a hobby. Like you have way too much time off. You need a hobby. Why don't you start a YouTube channel or something? You like the voice of, you know, you like the sound of your own voice. So why not? And um, yeah. So so I thought, well, actually, I'm really fascinated in what's happening in social media. This was back in 2014, 2015. I don't really understand it, and the only way to truly understand something is to immerse yourself in it. So so that's what I did. I started off just sitting in front of my computer. And then, of course, what are you going to talk about? If you have a YouTube channel, you should talk about something. And the only thing that I knew was flying. So that's what I started talking about. But I, I had also noticed something, something that I thought felt a little bit worrying. And that was the presence of pilots on, on social media or on YouTube or anywhere on the internet really back then was largely negative. So if you went out on a, on a chat forum, like Peep Room, the, the uh, professional pilot groomer network, which is, I, still, I think it's still around. It is, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you were a budding pilot, someone who wanted to get into the industry and really passionately loved it, like, like I did when I started, and you started Googling your way and you found your way into these chat forums, the first thing that you noticed was the people in there really hated what they were doing. They really, they were just complaining, moaning about their employers, the airlines they were working for. Everything was negative. And I, I couldn't understand that because I loved my job and I was really proud of what I was doing. So I was wondering, why is it that this is the picture that people get when they go in and search for it? And I quite quickly understood that the reason for this is that happy pilots are not on the internet. Happy pilots, they're out doing something else. They're kite surfing, barbecuing with their friends, having a good time. They're not sitting in chat rooms. The only people that are sitting in chat rooms are people who need to vent about something. So, so this is why you get a skewed. If you got in there, you get a very skewed picture of what it's like to be, um, to be a professional pilot. So I thought, I'll start a channel where I talk about my experiences. I don't pretend that I am talking on behalf of anyone else than myself, but I am happy about it. I'm going to tell them my positive experiences and my negative experiences and what people should be looking out for before they join. So that was the whole beginning of it. So if you look at my very early videos, which don't do that, they're, they're, <laughs> they're very, very cringy. Uh, but you'll see me just sitting there and just basically sharing what I thought about certain things. And like, like I said, it's, it, does, it, it wasn't me giving a, a bright blue picture of how good it was to work as a pilot. I also gave the things that people need to know, like you will be working on Christmas, you will be missing your son's football practice or your daughter's football practice or whatever it might be. There are downsides to this that you need to be aware of. But overall, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> Absolutely. That's 
Yeah, absolutely. I th- I'm sure you feel the same about those early videos that Tom and I do about our early podcasts, you know, just uh, just don't go there. But um, but you've done incredibly well. You know, you've built up a really, really big following. I think last time I checked, you had like 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube. Did you expect to have this level of interest in what you were talking about when you first started that all those years ago? No, no. And, and I don't <laughs> think that you, like... There, there's, there's a lot of people now because the channel is pretty big. Um, and I mean, it's it's one thing to have 1.2 or 1.3 million subscribers. Another thing is how many views there is. And there are, you know, six to nine million views per month, which is enormous. And so other YouTubers are reaching out and asking, okay, so how did you do this? How did you get to that point? And I think it's really important to know that if you are going to start a YouTube channel now, as in back then you cannot start it with the uh with the goal of becoming a big youtuber or you shouldn't start with that you should start because you have something to say you should start because you want to give something to your audience share whatever if you're a great plumber you should be sharing how you are a great plumber and how anyone else can become a great plumber as well so at least if you're an educational youtuber which which i am then you need to big like you have to build it on the premises of giving to your audience if you think that your audience is going to give to you, you will not succeed because people will see through that immediately. They will only watch things that they get something out of. So that's why when I started, I was hoping that, you know, maybe some budding pilots is going to find this YouTube channel and they're going to listen to me because at the time I was already a, a line training captain, a type rating instructor, and, and <clears throat> sorry, and a type rating examiner. So you know, if they listen to me, at least they get something out of it. And that's good for them. And I have something to do. That's how I started. And then I noticed that the more I did that, the more people started kind of getting affected by it, watching it, reacting to it, putting in comments. So that was what was spurring me on to continue. Then, obviously, what you were talking about, which is to to explain really complex items in an easy and simple way, um, I mean, that's something that you have to be able to do as an instructor, because you are going to come across people, even flight students that, that needs that, you know, that, that understanding of a very complex item. And you can't start by being really complex. You have to start from the bottom and then building the complexities as you can see that they're starting to understand. So when I do my videos, I have always tried to picture my mom in front of me instead of the camera because i need i mean she's an intelligent woman but she has no idea about aviation so i picture trying to explain something to her and if i can explain it to her so that she understands it well then the likelihood is that a large percentage of the uh, the population will understand it as well it's fantastic. I mean, I'm an addict to your videos, you know, explaining what this is and how that works. And it's all, uh, yeah, you, you do a great job of, as I say, explaining these incredibly complex topics to to the idiot's guide. You know, it's, it's incredible. But um, what you've been doing recently as well, I've noticed, is a lot of kind of analysis of incidents and saying what went wrong with this famous crash or this runway excursion or whatever. Um, do you want to talk about why you moved into that and... Uh, yeah, you know, how, so, how those videos work? So very like for a very long time, I didn't want to touch accidents and incidents. Not at all. Um, I was against it because I thought that this is, you know, it's, that's not the way that I want to. I, I don't want to attract viewers that way. Uh, 
But pretty, you know, about, I'll say about two and a half years ago, what I realized was that these accidents and incidents are something that we professional pilots learn from. All right. We, during our recurrent training, we sit down with our colleagues and we look at incidents and accidents. We talk about them and we see what we can learn from them in order to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes ourselves. So I thought these are official final reports. Like I never speculate about incidents and accidents. I go into the finalized final report and I translate that into something that anyone can understand. And the reason I wanted to do that was for two reasons. A, I noticed that it reaches a lot more people. It's, it's something that has a storytelling value to it because uh, an incident or accident will always have a start, a middle and an end. Like you will always want to watch that whole thing through in order to know what happened, why it happened, and what happened at the very end. And doing really technical explanations. If I go in and I tell you, Joanna, I'm going to tell you about the hydraulic system on the 737. <laughs> you might be really interested in it, and then you might finish the video. Or you might just think, I can't be bothered with this, you know. <laughs> um, but if I tell you about a hydraulic system that failed, that caused an incident, if that's part of the whole story, then you will listen to it. Most likely, you will listen to it, and you will try to understand it because it's a means to an end. Which meant that I could build in all of these technical inst um, instructions that I wanted to, to give to people, all of the talking about crew resource management and how pilots interact with their traffic control and technical things. And I could build it into these stories and people would eat it up. They would learn from it. And I realized I'm going to reach a lot more people doing this. I'll be able to grow my channel. I'll be able to grow my influence. I'll be able to tell these stories to more people, which is ultimately what any YouTuber really wants to do. Yeah, and they are fantastic. You know, it's uh, you're a great storyteller and you visualize it really nicely as well. Is it Flight Sim that you use to recreate the situations? Well, to be honest, this is also one of the breakthroughs of my channel. And that was the fact that I found Dominic McAfee, which is my editor and a graphic designer. Um, he is really the genius behind the visual storytelling. So we work together. He does all of the simulations. He does all of the the, the added graphics and everything that, that you see when you're not looking at me in my sofa or in my chair, that's his work. So he works with different, um, normally there's a combination of several different simulators that's involved because some simulators are better at showing study grade cockpits, others are nicer to see from the outside. So there's an enormous amount of work that goes into one of these videos. I can imagine. How long does it take on average to create one of these? Well, those of who have followed my channel will have noticed that we went from four videos a month to three videos a month to two videos a month. So now we're at two videos a month and that's where we're staying because it takes us a minimum of two weeks. Wow. And that, that, is, that is me researching the, um, the video, which takes a while, but fortunately the, the final report, they're about 200 pages, so they're not that big. Um, and then there might be some other sources that I need to pull in. Then I need to do the, the uh, script and then I need to sit down and I need to film and raw edit the A-roll. As in the whole storytelling, the whole story is then complete. When I have that, then I send that over to Dominic. Dominic sits down and he annotates some timeline. And he says, okay, he, because he's not a pilot. He has no aviation background. Okay. He, which is crazy. I don't know how he does these simulations, but anyway. Um, he sits down and then he applies his visual storytelling to it. So he sits and thinks, 
the thing that Petter just said, how can I possibly show that graphically? Once he has created a plan for, okay, this is what I want to show, he goes into the simulator and he does maybe 200 different sim shots. Wow. And then he sits with that sim shot. And he had that, then he goes in and he does the graphics. So if I'm talking about a, a study that showed something or something that includes um, well, a hydraulic system, for example, a schematic of some sort, he creates that from scratch. Well, that's done. Then he sits down and he starts building the final product, which we typically then check. So we have, we have it done. I sit down with me, him, um, and the rest of my team. We're six people now. And we look at it, okay, is there something that we don't understand? Does this not make sense? And since he doesn't have an aviation background, I will sometimes need to, no, no, actually, no, that's the other way around. The stall looks like this. It doesn't look like that. So once we have that, then we have a product that I am, or we are ready to share. And what happens then is that we send that to my fantastic group of Patreons, which are people out there that are supporting me and the work financially. They're donating 5 euros, 10 euros, 20 euros per month to, because they like what I'm doing. Those people, they get to preview the video. So they sit down and they watch the video and they nitpick for any little mistake that they can find that they don't understand. So they are my failsafe. They'll come back and say, Peter, you know, at time 15.22, you say this, but it doesn't sound like that. Or there's a different thing shown on the screen. So then we have this, the next reset of it. And then after that has gone through all of this, then, you know, it's shown to the general public. Fantastic. And what a great idea to bring your fans in as um, your failsafe, as you called it. You know, we, we sometimes say on Simple Flying, our biggest critics are our readers. You know, we know very quickly if we got something wrong because everybody will tell us. And, you know, they're a fantastic resource. So Absolutely. And they, they love it. And I love talking to them. And we have weekly hangouts as well where, where I sit down and ask, answer their questions. There might be something that came from the latest video I did or just general things about aviation. But the, it's, this is crucial to do because you make mistakes. Just as a pilot makes mistakes, you, I will make mistakes as a, as a YouTuber. The problem is that it will be millions of people who see it. So the, less, the more I can reduce the amount of mistakes that I make, the better it is. Um, and I'll still, I'll still get stuff wrong and I still, there's still you know, spelling mistakes and things that come down. <laughs> inevitable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, nobody's perfect and we all try, but uh, yeah, it's nice to have those people to let us know when we don't get it quite right. So let's move on to talk about aviation more generally and your, your career um, in flying and what you think of the industry. Let's talk about the Boeing 737 first. You know, it's a, the world's favourite narrowbody aircraft. Do you love to fly it? Is it a great airplane to fly? It's a great aircraft to fly. It's it's uh, like uh, it's like an old Volvo, you know. <laughs> it's it you know it, like it it might not be pretty. The cockpit is very complicated compared to what new modern cockpits are, but it tells you what it's doing all the time, and it's pretty easy to figure out if anything goes wrong, which it very rarely does. Then it's pretty easy to understand what it is because it's a logical aircraft, right? There's very little computers involved in the systems as they as they are which means that from a pilot perspective that's pretty easy now it's harder to handle than some of the other aircraft especially the 800 um, that i fly because it has been so prolonged like you had the, the 737 200 was the way the size that it was supposed to be and then you've had kind of stretched it 
And the more you stretch it, the more complicated it is to handle and the easier it is to tail strike and things like that. So you have to, you have to really know how to handle it. But it's a lovely aircraft to fly. Have you ever flown an Airbus? Do you have any thoughts on the competition? I've never flown an Airbus. I would love to because it's a completely different um, psychology behind it. It's a completely different philosophy. Um, so I would love to do it. In fact, I have like I have some some thoughts about maybe doing a uh, an Airbus three three twenty type rating as part of my YouTube channel, as in just to do it as for the for the viewers, and with the added benefit of me actually getting to fly the thing. So mm. so I'm, I'm thinking about maybe doing that. It would be really really cool. That would be really cool. And I'd love to talk to you after about your comparisons between the two types because, uh, you know, nine out of 10 of us, when we step on a plane, it's going to be one of those two. Yeah. Um, but sometimes we get lucky and we're on a wide body if we're going a bit further away. Have you got any ambitions to be type rated on something a bit bigger? So I often get this question because I've been flying for 20 years now and I've been saying I've been on the 737 the whole time. Um, so naturally from people outside they will ask that question like wouldn't you want to fly a three an airbus 380 or a boeing 747 <laughs> or a triple seven or something and the answer i always give is that it depends on the type of life quality that the job will give me so because this is the this is one of the things that i talked about actually in my very early videos when you're in the cockpit it's almost the same distance from you and the nose of the aircraft in a 737 as it is on a 747 or an Airbus 380. Like, it will be very little difference. You're sitting in a cockpit, you're flying an aircraft, and you might be different heights away from the ground when you're taxiing, but it is literally the same. The speeds are the same. Inertia might be different. Fuel burn will definitely be different, but it is the same job-ish. The difference is that if you're flying one of those big birds, you are going to be flying long haul. And with that comes a different type of job. It means that you are going to be away more. You're going to be away from your family more. You're going to be subjected to things like jet lag to a larger extent. You might also get paid more. And you're going to, to see those fancy hotels all around the world. And you're going to be able to have a cup of coffee in New York and, and uh, you know, our favorite pizza place in Los Angeles and all of these really, really cool things. But those really cool things tends to be the things that you think about when you're training to become a pilot, right? When you're training to become a pilot, that's what you're envisaging. Really shiny jet flying off to some nice beach somewhere, staying a few days there and then flying back. Reality might be a little bit different depending on what stage of life that you're in. So I think that every newly examined 24-year-old pilot should get that job. Like literally, I would wish that for everyone because it would be the most awesome thing ever. But for a 40-year-old guy like me with a family two kids not so much i prefer being home in my own bed every night and i prefer being able to see my kids as much as possible as they're growing up spending time with my wife so that's the answer that's a very long answer to the question yeah i would love to fly it i might not want the job that flying it needs yeah, I think we've seen the impact of that with the almost exodus of experienced pilots, particularly from the long haul sector over the pandemic. You know, I think a lot of them had that downtime and spent more time with their families and realised, actually, I don't want to go back to that sort of job and either took early retirement or changed career or maybe changed to, like you, like a short haul airline where they do get to go home every night. So yeah. uh, we're, we're, we're talking about it. So let's carry on. Do you see this pilot shortage situation 
situation being resolved anytime soon. Um, is it something that you see day by day? Is your airline short of incoming pilots? So the answer to that is no. We're not going to see a, anything solving the, the uh, pilot shortage anytime soon. That, like, it has been a long time coming. I've been hearing about it for my entire career. It's never really happened. It is happening now. And it's happening now from, for a variety of reasons, where the pandemic is one, but just the, the overall baby booming generation, the great generation from the 50s and 60s, that is, has formed the backbone of the piloting um, occupation, the core for, yeah, well, since then, basically since the 80s. Um, those are going into retirement now, even quicker because of the, uh, because of the pandemic, like you, you said. And we just don't have the amount of pilots to replace them. It, it's as easy as that. Um, on top of that, you have something which is actually what's worrying me, and that is that during the pandemic, there was a lot of talks about propping up the airlines. You know, there was a lot of airlines that, that got a lot of state funding and help in order to keep them flying, which is great. Uh, but, you know, that, that kept a lot of bankruptcies from happening. But no one really talked about the flight schools. So no one really said or gave any money to the flight schools, the actual infrastructure that trains the new pilots that needs to fly our aircraft. So there's been a humongous amount of flight schools that's gone under globally. And, and if you look at that, together with the, 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 the real hit that the pilot occupation got from the pandemic, where you could see in newspapers all over the world how pilots were driving delivery trucks and standing outside soup kitchens and whatever, you know, it really hit the whole dream part of being a pilot. So it's basically a perfect storm that's happening now where with the inflation, the prices of becoming a pilot has become even higher. There are less flight schools around to actually train people. People are less interested in becoming pilots because, you know, I could be a Wall Street banker and earn five times as much as a pilot. And the pilot's salaries and terms of conditions have been sinking for the last 20 years. So if, if I'm a new, if I'm a new, like if I'm someone who is not bitten by the bug, if you're bitten by the bug, you have no choice. You need to become a pilot. That's, that's just what it is. <laughs> but, but if I'm not, if I'm standing there and I have a choice and I was like, I'm looking at careers, it would be cool to be a pilot, but I could also be working in banking or in whatever other financial sector or whatever it might be. It just does not make sense anymore. Like, why would you pay £120,000 to get into an industry where you get paid little for so long and might lose or might not even get a job if there's a new pandemic hitting or something else, uh, a war? So we are facing a real problem now, a real problem. It's going to be great for pilots like me and my colleagues who are experienced and, and you know, wealthy, sorry, wealthy, healthy, uh, that that can continue to work in the business as this, this shortage happens. We already see it in the United States where some of the regional airlines have had to increase their salaries with up to 50% sometimes because they now need to get people in. Yeah, wow. we're seeing a lot of kind of golden parachutes being offered as well. You know, do your training and we'll give you a 10 grand lump sum in your bank or something. But uh, yeah. it seems there's very little in Europe to incentivize, <clears throat> excuse me, somebody to become a pilot. You know, it is still very expensive. Do you see it as maybe um, airlines are going to have to put their 
hands in their pockets or governments are and start doing scholarships and more fully funded opportunities? So, yes. Um, the answer to that question is yes, on both accounts. Um, I think that it largely, it's going to have to be down to the industry. The industry is going to have to take more um, responsibility for the, the workforce. Um, I also think that there should be some help from, from local governments. If there are subsidies for, for helping people to become doctors or nurses or whatever it might be, then there should be similar subsidies. In Sweden, for example, you can get uh, you can get very beneficial government loans while you're studying that are basically very low interest rate, and you pay it back whenever you get a job that can support it. Those kind of things needs to be available. Um, I do think that there needs to be a little bit of skin in the game from the students. Still, my like my my dream scenario would be to 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 find a mechanism to find the people out there who would make great pilots, the girls and the boys out there who have the, uh, the core competences needed, find them and then, well, check them. You have, to, you have to do some kind of assessment to make sure that they can actually do the job because that's another pet peeve of mine. Um, and once you've found them, then these people can go through a flight school or a flight training organization, which is of the utmost highest quality. So you have to check the flight training organizations are well-funded, they have great instructors, great programs. All of that needs to be in place. And if that's the case, then the, the students would pay for maybe their private pilot license stage themselves. But the rest would be funded through some kind of maybe a bond by an airline that's willing to pick them up. So the airline come in and say, OK, we're going to be we're choosing you. We want you to join our organization. So we are going to pay for your training through the commercial pilot license stage, the instrument rating, the multi-engine rating, all of the MCC course. And then you're going to start working for us. And we need you to work for us for the first 10 years that the, or five years. And you pay a little bit from your salary or something like that to keep them to, to keep the investment for the airlines safe to them and to, to take away some of the pressure from the from the students. That sounds like a great plan. I mean, uh, you know, go go talk to the airlines about it because I'd be signing my son up tomorrow. <laughs> the airlines are starting to do this already. So okay. Air Baltic, for example, uh, I think doing are doing exactly this. Um, I, there are the, the, it's starting to come, and it will come more and more because the way that the air, the airlines work is that they are always fighting fires, right? There are very few airlines that can stand look into a ten year perspective. Maybe they, they can do that when it comes to buying aircraft. But, but when it comes to the supply of pilots, it's just something that's always been there, right? There's always been people who want to become a pilot. Sometimes you have to pay for their type rating. Sometimes they will pay for the type rating. It's, been, it's not been a problem. And it's, if it's not a problem, it's not something that they will look at. But when they're starting to see that they can't fly their flights because they don't have pilots, which happened in the United States, by the way, last summer, then it's a problem. And then they will start fixing it. And the way that they have traditionally always fixed it is they've just increased the term, terms and conditions. They put these signing bonuses and they've increased the salary a bit. And that has solved the problem, right? So, you know, pilots have been moving forth and back. Sometimes they go to, to, to uh, like the Middle East. Sometimes they go back from the Middle East. Sometimes they go to China, go back from China. But what we're looking at now is a global thing. Yeah. So I think that I, if, if I take out my crystal ball, my guess would be that we're going to start seeing this within the next few years. 
Interesting. Watch this space, as we like to say on this podcast. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about staffing problems, though, it's been a summer of staffing problems. It hasn't just been pilots. We've also seen not enough people at the airports, not enough baggage handlers, not enough security guys. Has that affected you directly? Like when you've been flying, have you been dealing with this disruption at the airports around Europe? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I was sitting for three hours in Eindhoven just a few weeks ago because there was not enough people to, to man the, uh, the baggage cart or fuel the aircraft or um, marshal passengers to and from the aircraft. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it's, it's happening everywhere. Now, that is... <laughs> it's the short-sightedness, again, from the industry. In this case, it was the airport that, that just very quickly fired a lot of people during the pandemic because they saw that they need to conserve cash, which I completely understand. But the problem, though, is that, A, some of those jobs are not well paid. So but being, I've been working as a ramp agent myself. I've been you know, cleaning aircraft and, and throwing bags. It's, it's okay paid, but it's not great paid. But in order to do that, you need to go through a security check. You need to get a badge. You need to get training to do things like marshalling, pushback, and things like that. All of that takes time. So you can't just kick people out. And then think that those people will just automatically come back again. So that's what happened. They lost loads of people that went on to other industries. They, they were like, oh, I wasn't really good pay there anyway. I'm going to do this other job now and I'm not going to come back because they paid the same rubbish as they did before. Um, and then they realized, okay, so new people, new people didn't want to do it either. And if, even if they found new people, they would have to go through all of this training. And they couldn't do that during the summer. Like that takes yeah. two months. That's the summer season. So that's what we were seeing. Yeah. yeah. Do you think we're over the worst of it now? I mean, they've had that kind of really chaotic summer, but they've had time to put people in place now. Do you think next summer will be a lot easier? Yeah. I think that next summer was going to be easier for a couple of reasons. I think that next summer is going to be tough for for the industry. Um, What we've seen now, this is, by the way, uh, this is just me spitballing. <laughs> this is me looking into an imaginary crystal ball. But if, if, like, if my experience to talk to something is that you can see patterns coming and going, and if what we're seeing right now is the beginning of a quite bad recession, it's you know the inflation is extremely high, um, which is causing interest rates to go up, which is hitting people's wallets. And the first thing that ten, that people tend to do when they're saving is to save on that trip. They were about to take the fun. Okay. So um, I think that this summer has been a fantastic summer because it's been a rebound from the pandemic where everyone wanted to travel. Yeah. And also, during the pandemic, you had this really weird situation where some people were hit, hit really badly financially, typically people working like me in the travel industry or in the hotel industry. But you had loads of people who were sitting at home, not commuting, working the same jobs, making the same money and just hoarding it because they couldn't do anything with it. Yeah. So you had this summer where suddenly, at least in Europe, the uh, the borders opened up. People had loads of money and they were now going to spend it. And they did. And they still do. We, we can still see people are spending a lot more on, on restaurants and stuff here in Spain where I'm living than they usually do. But that will come to a screeching end towards the beginning of the spring, after Christmas now, especially if there comes another couple of interest rates in, uh, increases. 
That's what I'm thinking. I think that next summer is going to be less than, way less than what was this summer, and it might actually be a quite tough summer. Um, so that means that there's going to be less need for all the personnel and stuff again, but it's not going to be a terrible summer. It's going to be okay, right? Not like this, but okay. And then I think that we're going to see an uptick again. I hope you're right. Uh, we won't hold you to it, though. As you say, it's uh, crystal ball time here, really, when we're talking about the future. But you've been very generous with your time today. I don't want to keep you all day, but, uh, but I could talk to you all day. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Um, talk to me about your hopes for aviation in the future more generally. Um, you know, let's look ahead maybe 10, 15 years from now. Do you see any major changes in the industry, maybe with regards to technology or the way that people are treating aviators? What, what are your hopes? hopes for the future so um first of all aviation works really really slowly like if we go back 15 years from where we are now not much has changed it it's been the onset of our nav approaches um that has really been the big thing apart from that i fly the same 737 now as i flew 15 years ago looks exactly the same we have a little bit of cpdlc which is the data link connection with air traffic control um but not much. However, what, what has happened is that people, I think, have started to understand that this is not sustainable. <laughs> we, can't, we can't do this. Unfortunately, um, I know a lot of people like, we should, should attack aviation. Aviation, they're big, you know, they, they put a lot of stuff into the atmosphere. What people don't seem to understand is that aviation is already extremely efficient, right? This is all, this is the bread and butter of the airline. So try to fly as efficient aircraft as possible because that makes them more money. Spending less fuel means more money for the airlines, which means that the incentive to make it as efficient as possible is already there. And we're seeing that with the onset of the 737 MAX, the uh, Airbus 321neo, all of these new aircraft with new fancy engines that are using way less fuel. This is the way that the industry can do it. But we're almost at a top. We can't make them much more efficient than what they are now, like with the current, the way that we use physics, basically. Which means that what we, what we as the human race should be looking at is the low-hanging fruit. It's the type, like, for example, traffic, cars, uh, trucks, the boats, all of the shipping that is going on. Those are stuff that we could make a hundred times more efficient than they are right now pretty easily. But to make aviation a hundred times more efficient, that is stretching what we as a species are able to do. So I know that people are talking about electric aircraft. We don't have the battery technology to do that on any large scale. We, we just don't have this. Not The energy density of the batteries are not there yet. So electric passenger air, tra um, air traffic, not within the next 15 years. Not unless we invent some new type of battery that I don't see yet. So I think we're going to see more new aircraft types that are even more efficient, that have even better engines, but they're going to look more or less the same in 15, 20 years than they do now. However, there might be less of them because maybe I think the price of aviation is going to go up. We're going to see a ticket not costing 50 pounds, but maybe 150 pounds. It's going to be, it's going to be less people flying because of that, because it's going to become more expensive again, just for the reality of things with energy. Um, when it comes to pilots, yeah, so the big uh, aircraft manufacturers out there, Boeing and Airbus, are working on more automation. It's it's that's just the truth of it. 
Um, so, and they are pushing for a single pilot cockpits, which I really hope will not happen. happen. But there is a possibility that we are going down that route eventually, that it's going to be less and less emphasis on pilots, uh, more and more on automation. But I don't, like the step from three to two pilots was an easy one to, to do with technology. From two to one is not an easy one. That really requires artificial intelligence. Yeah. And we don't have that yet. So I think that that's more than 15. I, I think that I will I think not- there's a there's a huge perception issue to get over there as well, you know, in terms of passengers. You know, we always see it. There's two pilots, you know, if something goes wrong with one person, there'll still be someone to fly the plane. If you just have one, you know, what happens if they pass out, you know, people yeah. wouldn't understand that maybe there's another person on the ground that could actually fly the plane on their own if if the person in the cockpit's not able to. But I think that's gonna be a massive barrier to the plans for single pilot operations. And even that, even like, first of all, to have someone remotely fly the aircraft is perfectly possible, but the security issues are enormous, right? Mm. You probably don't want anyone to be able to, 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 to take over the flight controls remotely. <laughs> you just don't no. want that. <laughs> right? that's, that's one. Uh, the other thing is that even if they managed to do this, even if they could have an artificial intelligence in the aircraft that could be able to get the aircraft safely down on the ground if the one pilot disappears, who is going to want to be that one pilot? Like, who's going to want to sit by themselves in the cockpit over the Atlantic Ocean for 10 hours? <laughs> Doesn't sound like the most fun job, does it? <laughs> I, I wouldn't. No way. You know, part of the thing is that you work with a co-pilot and you talk to each other and you, you remind each other of things. And you do like it's, it's, it, it is a teamwork thing. Mm. So sitting up there by yourself, I don't think then, then we're really going to have a problem finding pilots. That's for sure. I'd be up for it, but I'm a bit of an introvert and I quite like sitting all alone for many hours, but uh, that's just me. Yeah, you wouldn't though. (laughs) I can guarantee you that. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you, Petter. It's absolutely, I I could go on all day, uh, but I will let you get on with your day. You know, please do join us again sometime on the Simple Flying Podcast because we'd we'd love to chat to you some more, um, maybe about some more aviation stuff. Um, But thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been lovely being here. Fantastic. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.